weeping, in fact, was from the book of Matthew. Uh, And that's because uh, that has a lot to do with what we will be studying this morning, the marriage of the Lamb. And this is a concept, this marriage of the Lamb is a concept that is fairly well known in Christendom uh, and kind of taken for granted, maybe even sometimes what it means and what it is. And so when we come to places like that in the Bible, and even from our scripture reading, places like Matthew twenty-two fourteen that say many are called, uh, but few are chosen in these kinds of passages, we may just automatically think we know what that means or well, it's always been taught this way and these kinds of things, and so we just move over it and keep going. And the marriage of the Lamb may be one of those kinds of uh, areas as well. So it's good when we come to those kinds of topics in the Bible, it's good to sometimes step back and study them in detail and get all of the information so that we can uh, truly understand what the Lord is saying to us uh, so that we understand his word correctly. That's a good, that's a good idea. And sometimes we come to places in the Bible that where there are some disagreements, even among dispensationalists, there are times when there are, are disagreements about what precisely passages mean. And you know what? That is quite okay. It, it is fine as long as we are using solid biblical interpretation principles. It's okay to disagree about some things. Now, uh, whether or not Jesus is God is not one of those areas where it's okay to disagree. Jesus is God. That is very clear. Jesus must be God, in fact, or else we're still in our sin. Uh, uh, you know, when you come to places, institutions where there is no disagreement, typically those aren't very uh, free institutions, if you will. I think of uh, the Communist Chinese Party, for example. There is absolutely no disagreement in the CCP about anything. Uh, they're not very free. You think of the, the Soviet Union. You know, they had elections in the Soviet Union and Brezhnev, Khrushchev, Stalin. Oh, lo and behold, they got 100% of the vote. Uh, there is no disagreement in those, those kinds of societies. And that's not a good thing. I don't know if you saw the video. Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping was uh, about three or four months ago was elected as their president or premier or whatever. Did you see the video of the guy getting hauled off from, from the meeting? It was, it's horrifying. Uh, the guy is visibly shaken and like holding on to the table and no, they insist you're coming with us. And he leaves the room and who knows what happened. We don't want to be like that as, as believers in Christ. Yes, there are some fundamentals that are absolutely uh, must be understood. God is God. He's our creator. Jesus is God, the, the Trinity, uh, salvation by faith and not works. These kinds of things are, are obvious from the scriptures. There's no, there's no room for disagreement in those kinds of things. 
Today we come to a, to a place where there may be some disagreement. But we'll spend some time looking at this topic, the marriage of the Lamb, go to several places in the Bible and try to, try to make sense, get a, a good, solid understanding of, of what this is. And that's, it's good to go to other places in the Bible, especially when you're studying Revelation. Rev, the John makes more references to the Old Testament than any other author of Scripture. The overwhelming majority of the book of Revelation is references to Old Testament passages, gives, giving us a, a good, clear, overall picture of what God's plan is for the future. And so to understand this, we'll have to go to several places in the Bible. And so we find ourselves here in the main body of the book of Revelation, beginning in chapter 6, all the way through chapter 19. And verse 21 is describing uh, events of the tribulation period. And we've also seen, of course, some of these breaks in the action where we're getting where the chronology essentially isn't continuing, but we're getting more information about these events that are taking place. But you notice today we're in Revelation 19, 7 and 8. We're getting really close to the end uh, of this section, the main body of the book of Revelation. It ends in verse 21 of chapter 19. So of course, this section chapter 6 through chapter 19 essentially are concerning the tribulation period, the things which will take place after these things. You remember our outline of the book of Revelation. Revelation 1.19 lays that out for us. So we, we've seen all of these incredible events of the tribulation period, the future tribulation period. We're not in as bad as things may seem. Uh, this isn't the tribulation. This is nothing compared to the events that we studied, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, which we, believe it or not, have recently finished. Revelation 16, describing these seven bowl judgments, and now in 17 through 19 and even a portion of uh, into chapter 20, we have another one of these breaks in the action where we're learning more information about various events that took place. The main events of this section are the description of these two cities, one city being an evil city, Babylon, the, the future headquarters of the one world government, We saw its destruction in Revelation 17 and 18. And now we're kind of slowly moving our way into God's city, the new Jerusalem that we will begin to learn about. Uh, We'll see some of today uh, if we get there. And uh, moving into Revelation 21, this future dwelling place where believers in Christ will dwell with God for eternity. So just like the Bible can be kind of broken down into a story of two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem, well, that's what Revelation is, can easily be broken down that way as well. A tale of two cities, Babylon, the evil city that is destroyed, 
and God's city, the new Jerusalem, where we will dwell with God for eternity. Before that takes place, and uh, part of that new city is this marriage of the Lamb. So today, we'll try to, well, I'm not sure we're even going to, we'll answer the first question. I'm fairly certain of that. Uh, The second one, maybe. Third one, I'm going to say no way. Are we get to the third question. Our questions are, when is the wedding? Who is the bride? And how are the people dressed? That's kind of uh, like a normal wedding that you're going to go to. Well, uh, when is this thing? Can I even, can I go to this wedding? Who's getting married? What am I supposed to wear? Same kind of uh, thing that we see here in the marriage of the Lamb. Notice Revelation 19 Beginning in verse 7, it says, well, you know what? I'll back up to verse 6 because that's actually where this quote begins. Verse 6 of Revelation 19 says, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So we begin with our question here, when is the wedding? That's why I backed up to verse 6, because that verse 6 Uh, is part of the quote of verse 7 and into verse 8 as well. It's all kind of one thought. I don't know about your Bible, but my Bible has a a header there at the top of verse 7 that says the marriage of the Lamb. And that sort of gets in our way of understanding the complete thought that is being given here because it begins back in verse 6. So these uh, verses, even the chapter delineations, the, the verses, certainly the, the headings that we find in our Bible, none of those things are inspired. Uh, they, of course, none of them were included in the original writing. They're, they're there to kind of help us, but sometimes they get in the way. And this would be one of those times that this gets in the way. The quote, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. First off, uh, again, verse 6 is part of this uh, quote. So that gives us the context of when this wedding actually takes place. We find the answer in verse 6, but I don't want to get ahead of myself because uh, perhaps the first and most important thing that we can take away from this, there there are a few takeaways from this entire study, but this, for me personally, is probably the most important takeaway of the whole thing. Like I mentioned in Sunday school, a lot of times I, this, the lesson is for me and I get the benefit of hearing myself say it. Uh, this is as well. 
rejoice, be glad, give him the glory. Uh, This, I should only speak for myself. It is very unfortunate that I am not a person who is rejoicing and being glad all the time. I don't know about you. I'll just speak for myself that it is a very unfortunate characteristic to not be a person who is glad all the time uh, because that's the way we ought to be as believers in Christ. And I've uh, had the privilege of knowing uh, a lot of Christians who this is very, very clearly their attitude, their outlook on life, and they are a joy to be around. There was a young couple, uh, well, I guess they were probably older than we were. Suzanne and I were very young when we were in Corpus Christi, Texas. And there was a couple there. His name was Glenn. I can't remember her name. He was, he embodied this. He was always rejoicing. He was always glad. He, he, uh, they believe they had homeless people back in the 90s uh, as well as today. And he uh, had always in his car, he had a bunch of, uh, a bunch of bananas at all times. And every, every time he would come across a homeless person, he wouldn't give him any money, he'd hand him a banana. He was, uh, <laughs> he was a real character. But he was a person who embodies this principle of rejoicing and being glad always under any circumstances. I had a, a it was kind of a health scare, if you will. It turned out to be absolutely nothing. Right before I was supposed to uh, graduate from flight school, I had a chest x-ray and they said my aorta was swollen. I had an aneurysm and stop flying, go home, sit in a chair. You have to do all these medical tests and don't hardly breathe because you may fall over and die at any second. Well, I go through all of this stuff and we go to church with Glenn, of course, and uh, and he was just adamant. Oh, nothing will happen. It's it's fine. You, you're there's nothing wrong with you. You will be fine. And even if there is something wrong with you, God will heal it. He wants you to be a pilot. There's no doubt in my mind. And so I go through all this. It took about a month going through these various tests. Come back, go to the final doctor. Ah, uh, yeah, they misread the X-ray. There's nothing wrong with you. Uh, so carry on, go back, tell Glenn, ah, praise the Lord. I told you, I don't know why you were so worried. I don't know why you're down in the dumps. There's nothing to worry about. It's all going to work out. Rejoice and be glad. Give him the glory. And this, this is for us in the 21st century when our schools are being infiltrated with communist propaganda and LGBTQ and all of this garbage that is going on in the world. The local establishment down the road has their uh, embracing of evil that they're carrying on in. Rejoice and be glad because that's not you. You are a Christian. You are bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, and we are his, we have the privilege of being lights for him in a place that's very dark. (laughs) You don't need a flashlight when you're walking around in the middle of the day and the sun is shining and everything is great. You need a flashlight when you're in a dark cave and you can't see anything. And you're very grateful for that flashlight. It serves its purpose. You serve your purpose when you live in a dark world that needs 
Jesus Christ. And we ought to rejoice and be glad and give him the glory. Uh, This uh, phrase, rejoice and be glad, is found in uh, another place in the Bible. I think these are the only two places, in fact, that this exact phrase is used. Matthew 5, 12, Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So again, as, as our nation transitions into one that fully embraces evil and hates God, rejoice and be glad because they, they uh, persecuted the prophets in just the same way who went before you. We are living, we're not living in unique times. We are living in normal times as the country progresses further and further to evil. It was unique back before it was like this here in America. So rejoice and be glad because your reward in heaven is great. It's also interesting to note that this phrase, be glad, uh, scholars like to investigate, Greek scholars investigate how words are used outside of the Bible to kind of get a a feel for the way the word is actually used in an effort to better understand what the scriptures say. And that can be very valuable sometimes. It's interesting to note that this term, be glad, uh, it means to be exceedingly joyful. And it is only found in the Greek literature. It is only found in the Bible and in ecclesiastical writing, which is a fancy way of saying writing about the Bible. So like uh, just a normal Greek person writing a letter to his family or whatever, he didn't use this phrase, be glad. It's only in the Bible, only Christians. This is a Christianese term, be glad. And we ought to, that ought to be something that we uh, embrace as believers. And we ought to give glory to God. Paul says in Philippians Four, four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Yeah, guess what? He's nearer today than he was 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote this. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This, this ought to be something that we uh, as a church and as believers memorize and commit to our hearts like Proverbs 3, one of our 10 principles for Christian living, internalize God's word, internalize this one. Because I don't know about you again, but me personally, I need this a lot. And so we ought to be doing it. We ought to be rejoicing in the Lord. And why are these people rejoicing? Well, it goes again back to verse 6. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. If you'll remember, that word literally means praise the Lord. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Or as we saw last time, has begun to reign is a better interpretation of that. Like it says... In verse 7, it's the same, the same tense is being used there. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has 
come and his bride has made herself ready. That has come is just the same as it, as it is in to reign here that we saw in verse 6. The Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. It's an aorist active indicative there that says that the marriage of the Lamb has come. The Lord has begun to reign and the marriage has come. These two things are synonymous is what that is saying. The Lord reigning in the marriage of the Lamb is a description of the kingdom that is to come. We know that because the Lord, the God, the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. He is going to reign when he comes again after the seven bowls have been poured out. Then the kingdom comes. Again, we, we can see this as we put the pieces together in Revelation 20, where it describes, then I saw the angel coming down from heaven. Uh, Satan is bound for 1,000 years. He's thrown into the abyss that's sealed over him. He won't deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are completed again over and over. It mentions this thousand years that will take place that is after the tribulation period. That is when the Lord is reigning. And that is when this marriage of the Lamb is taking place. This celebration is taking place. It is, a, it is another analogy or a description for the kingdom coming to the earth. It is a celebration of God living with man. That is, that is God's purpose in all of this. It is to eradicate sin and evil and create an environment where God can dwell with people. That was his original intention in creation. As we go back to Genesis chapter 1, God's purpose in creating you and me and this whole planet is so that he can live with us, so that he can live with people who uh, love him and have faith in him and trust him, and we can live in perfect harmony without sin uh, destroying everything around us. That's God's intention. And that is what is going to begin to take place in the kingdom period when Christ himself comes again to rule and reign over this earth and we will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. And then beginning in Revelation 21, we move into a new heaven and a new earth where it's, where it's even better. It's even a more perfect place to live with the Lord. But that all begins with this thousand year period. Just like Zephaniah says in Zephaniah 3.15, Zephaniah is a book that's really all about the same material, the same tribulation period and some of the things that happen and what the Lord is going to do in this period. And then the ultimate takeaway is that God, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, second person of the Trinity, is going to live with humanity 
And that's worth celebrating. Zephaniah 3.15, The Lord has taken away His judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. That's what the tribulation period is about. God judging His enemies on the earth, the enemies of, of Israel, and establishing His kingdom upon the earth. And it goes on to say, notice this, the King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. Who is the King of Israel? Jesus Christ, of course, the Lord. It even says it there in Zephaniah. Oh, is Jesus God? <laughs> I sure hope so, because the Bible says that he is the one who saves us. He is the one who's going to uh, rule and reign over this earth. He is the King of Israel. The Lord is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord, your God, is in your midst. Notice that again. Uh, when the Jehovah's Witness show up at your door, is Jesus God? Well, the Lord, your God, is in your midst. Jesus is God. No room for disagreement there. He must be God or we're, we're lost in our sins. And notice this too about Jesus, the King of Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God. He is a victorious warrior. Uh, much of Christendom has a very skewed and incomplete view of who Jesus is. He's not the, the hippie, long-haired, sandal-wearing guy from the chosen. Maybe he had long hair. I don't really know. The Bible doesn't really say. He probably most likely did wear sandals. Was he a hippie? No. Uh, no, not at all. He was God in human flesh, and he did come to the earth kind of pictured as a lamb as he is here in Revelation many times, uh, a gentle person, but he also did run the, the money changers out of the temple as well, lest we forget with a whip, if memory serves. Uh, but he's also a victorious warrior. He is the one who is going to come again to this earth and slay his enemies with the word, the sword that comes out of his mouth with his very words. And the slaughter is going to be so great that we saw that the blood is going to run for 200 miles up to the horse's bridle we studied that yeah that's that's a victorious warrior that's a complete understanding of who jesus is he will exalt over you with joy he will be quiet in his love he will rejoice over you with shouts of joy all this takes place when he comes again to the earth to establish his kingdom on the earth and this is worthy of our celebration. And God has instituted a 1,000-year period where we are going to get to celebrate this. And in fact, when we go to Revelation 21, we're going to see that this celebration actually extends all the way into eternity. We're celebrating the fact that God has accomplished His purpose in this world to dwell with humanity. And we see this in other passages as well, that this marriage, this marriage supper 
Hebrew marriage is as a much more complicated kind of endeavor than than what it is for us in American society you know you send it and I've had a, a daughter get married it's complicated <laughs> uh, in America making everything come together uh, but for the Hebrews it's even more so it's a drawn out process that goes on for for quite some time. We're not going to take the time to go through all of that. It is a wonderful picture of uh, what God is going to do for us, is doing now, and will do in the future as believers. But we can, uh, all that to say that this wedding and the wedding feast is kind of one package. It's one, the, the wedding itself and the wedding feast, you can, in American society, you can kind of think of it as the wedding ceremony and the meal, uh, the reception afterwards. Uh, in Jewish society, that's drawn out over an entire week period. Uh, but it's all part of the wedding ceremony. And we read one of our passages, Matthew 22, about this, uh, that has the same kind of language in it. Matthew 22, 1, Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. The kingdom of heaven. When we see that phrase in the book of Matthew, uh, I go out on a limb and say every time Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven in his gospel, he is referring to the thousand year reign of Christ upon the earth. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. The kingdom is a wedding feast in this parable that we read about. And then uh, there are some other details there that uh, we don't need to get into for this, but just the take away the fact that the wedding feast is compared to the kingdom. Luke 12, verses 35 through 38, we need to be ready for this kingdom to come is the takeaway. Jesus says, Luke 12, 35, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them, whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. So the comparison here is that when the Lord comes, he's going to serve people at a table when he comes. There's going to be some kind of celebration when he comes again, and the Lord himself is going to serve people. Matthew 25 and verse 13, a very a familiar passage probably to us. Matthew 25, coming after Matthew 24, of course, where Jesus, just, uh, all a part of the Olivet Discourse, 
where Jesus in Matthew 24 is describing the same material as what we see here in Revelation, the tribulation period. And then in Matthew 25, he begins to start telling some parables about this uh, period that culminates with him coming again to establish his kingdom. So very clear timeline that I wish we had our prophecy timeline in here. Church age ends with the rapture. Uh, Then at some subsequent time to that, a tribulation period. Then Jesus comes again. Then the kingdom comes. That's why we are uh, pre-tribulational. We believe that Jesus will come again to catch up the body of the church before pre the tribulation begins. We're also pre-millennial because the Bible could not be any more clear about this point than it is. It's more clear that Jesus comes before the kingdom begins than it is that he comes before to rapture us before the tribulation. Pre-millennial. The Messiah comes to the earth, then the kingdom comes. Bible cannot be any more clear about that. Old and New Testament. That's what he's laying out here in the parables in Matthew 25. Tribulation, then Jesus comes to the earth, then the kingdom happens. And uh, if for all of those who may see this during the seven-year tribulation, when we're not here meeting at Flushing Bible Church anymore, and maybe this will still be on YouTube. You, you read it and uh, you'll see that you ought to be ready for Jesus to come again to the earth. Matthew 25 says, verse 1, Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. They were not prepared for Jesus to come again. Uh, During the tribulation period, this is. But the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us. And you too go instead to the dealers, buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. Wedding feast is the kingdom then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to, here again, a wedding feast. Those who, during the tribulation period, did not have faith in Christ, were not ready for him to come, are excluded from the wedding feast. They're excluded from the kingdom, and they will be judged as God's enemies because of that. He'll go on to say, in, uh, beginning in verse 31, Uh, Later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. This is not, repeat, is not referring to 
the rapture of the church, as you may hear one very prominent uh, YouTube dispensationalist say, this is not speaking of the rapture. This is speaking of the tribulation period, like the rest of the Olivet Discourse to Israel, answering the question of when is the kingdom going to come? Jesus very clearly explains to them the answer to the question is, first, there's going to be tribulation. Then they will see the sign of the Son of Man coming. He will come to the earth, and you better be ready for it when it happens. Because if you're not ready, you will be excluded from the kingdom. This is not a warning to you, Christian, that you better be ready. You better be living for the Lord today, or you're not going to be raptured. That is false teaching, false doctrine, quite frankly. Uh, we are saved upon one condition, and that is trust in the Lord. And then he wants us to be zealous for good deeds. Then he wants us to walk by the Spirit, trusting in him moment by moment, living in obedience to him. And at some point in time, he's going to catch us up. And when he does we will face the judgment seat of Christ. So we ought to be ready to secondary application to this. But this isn't to us. And part of the problem and why we're kind of stepping back from this passage and in Revelation and understanding exactly who the bride is, exactly what the wedding is and all of these concepts so that we don't fall into the trap of for example, thinking the 10 virgins in this parable are you and me and we better be ready or only part of us are going to be raptured in these kinds of uh, false teachings. That simply isn't true. That is not what this passage is teaching. The kingdom is like a wedding feast and you need to be ready for it to come is Matthew 25. The celebration is in the Father's Kingdom. Jesus himself said that. Matthew 26 and verse 29, when he's instituting the Lord's Supper at the Last Supper before he went to the cross, at the end he says, But I say to you, Matthew 26, 29, I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus Christ will drink the fruit of this vine again in the Father's kingdom at the celebration of the fact that he is living with humanity again. The marriage of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb is the kingdom period. And we get even more uh, kind of point blank description of that in Matthew, uh, Revelation 21 and verse 9 in the following verses that we're not going to study in detail today because we're not to Revelation 21 yet. But nevertheless, notice what it says. Let's read again Revelation 19 and verse 6. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Now we go to Revelation 21.9. Notice 
what it says. I realize there's a whole lot of information between here and there, but just bear with me. Then one of the seven angels, Revelation 21, 9, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The wedding, when is the wedding? It is in, the, it begins in the kingdom period, the 1,000 years after Jesus has begun to reign, as stated in 19.6, when he reigns, the marriage of the Lamb has come, this celebration will continue through the thousand years and all the way into eternity because it is a celebration of God living with people. The wedding is the kingdom and eternity. That's why it talks about uh, God ruling, God reigning forever and these kinds of things, we could get confused or maybe like, ah, I thought it was only a thousand years. Well, it is a thousand years, but it also goes into eternity. It's not just the thousand years, but it's forever. And praise the Lord for that. We get to live with Jesus Christ in perfect harmony as believers in the church age throughout the thousand year period Right here on this very earth, won't that be something? Isn't that something to look forward to as we're living uh, in uh, contrariness with the creation around us and life is a struggle and things are terrible from time to time? Sometimes things are great. A lot of times they're not. It's just a constant battle with sin and my, my own uh, rejection of God sometimes. There will be none of that. There will be, uh, we will be living in perfect harmony on this very earth with Christ for a thousand years. And then it gets better than that in eternity in the new Jerusalem. No wonder it tells us to rejoice and be glad and give him the glory. So when is the wedding? The wedding is in the kingdom, period, is the answer to that question. In fact, you could even say that the marriage and the marriage feast is the kingdom. The two are synonymous. That's what it is it, uh, in one respect. That's not describing the entirety of what the kingdom is, but in one respect, it is a celebration of God and man living together in harmony. So we've got time. I can't believe it. Who is... The bride will just keep moving right along. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now, uh, the first reaction I would imagine for everyone is that, well, the that answer is easy. Who's the bride? The bride is the church. Of course, we all know that. And that answer is correct, but not complete. So let's try to make our understanding complete of this concept of who is the bride. Again, 
the most popular view is going to be that, well, we don't even need to spend any time with this. Of course, the church is the bride. And uh, there are a number of references that people oftentimes go to uh, in a kind of cursory way to prove this point. And of course, the standby is Ephesians 5.22. And well, really 5.22 all the way down through uh, 32 and that whole section. We spent a lot of time studying that, if you'll remember back to our study of Ephesians. And if memory serves, we did kind of hit on uh, some of these same topics, this idea of this Ephesians 5 teaching that the bride is Christ uh, and, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, Christ, the church is the bride of Christ as if it's taught in Ephesians 5. We spent some time studying that. So let's look at it again because that was quite a while ago. Notice Ephesians 5.22. Close reading here. Is it teaching that the church is the bride of Christ in this passage? Ephesians 5.22. If you'll remember, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, the doctrine section of the book. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, Paul gets very practical because first we have to have doctrine. Then we have our duties, if you'll remember. We've got to know who Christ is, how to be saved, and how to live with him before we find out what our lives ought to look like. And that's what Ephesians 5 is, what our lives ought to look like. And Paul goes, he doesn't shirk, uh, he doesn't sidestep any topics. He goes right to marriage because that's a very important uh, relationship in humanity. And in fact, it's such an important uh, part of civilization that it makes you wonder why it's under such assault today. That's a topic for another day. Ephesians 5.22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. So God is, is established in an authority structure within the marriage relationship. The head of the home is the husband. Uh, The woman is to be subject to or submit herself to uh, her own husband. Notice that word is important. There's so much to say about this and I'll get lost in the details. But to your own husband, this is not teaching that women are subject to men. That is uh, something that that, uh, unbelievers do. Let's put it that way. Uh, That's what they do. Women are not subject to men. In the marriage relationship, the man is the head of the house. That's all that's being stated here. Uh, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So Paul is making the analogy, the topic is... subjection. Who is in charge of whom? Who is is placed in the role of authority over whom within marriage? Well, it's similar to the church. The church 
is to be subject to Christ. Christ is our head. Wives are to be subject to their husbands in the same way. And oh, by the way, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the wife subjects herself to her husband, the wife, the female uh, partner in this marriage subjects herself to the husband, the male uh, subject here. Uh, We've got to point these things out today in 2023. Uh, And this is the same way that it is in the church. The church is to subject themselves to Christ. Husbands are to love your wives the same way that Christ loved the church. That, that's complete, utter devotion. Christ was utterly devoted to the church. He gave his very lifeblood to the church. That is the way that a husband is to love his wife. This is uh, not teaching this concept of the church being the bride of Christ. It is an analogy to show us what our attitudes ought to be towards one another the same, in the same kind of relation that Christ is to the church. Paul also does say that believers are betrothed to Christ. 2 Corinthians 11.2, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin, it says there. Like or as, simile, analogy uh, is being presented here. We are to be faithful to Christ until he comes again for us the same way that a that a woman is faithful to her husband before they are married. Again, back to the, to the Jewish uh, marriage, if you will, the way that they conducted things. That's why Joseph and Mary, uh, there had not been a wedding ceremony the way that we think of it when Mary was found to be with child uh, and Joseph is distraught, of course. Uh, And so God sends an angel to him to show him, to tell him that this child is special. It is from the Holy Spirit. It's the Messiah. Continue to uh, be betrothed to Mary. Keep her as your wife. Uh, Because this is a big deal. (laughs) Whether we know it or not, in 2023, this this is a big deal to God. The idea of being pure and being loyal uh, to him and loyal in marriage is important to the Lord and to our relationship with him. And so here, that's what he is saying. He's using an analogy again to uh, show the relationship between the church and Christ. And again, you know, we can say, well, what difference does it make? Yes, we are the bride. Uh, The church is the bride of Christ. But again, when you take it too far, you end up with Matthew 25, the parable of the 10 virgins being the church. If If you take this concept of the church being the bride of Christ here in Revelation 19 and not understanding what the marriage 
celebration is, you can take that concept and plug it into other passages and get yourself in, into trouble. Uh, so again, this is uh, figurative language describing the relationship of the church with Christ. Is it okay to say the church is the bride of Christ? Yes, it is. As long as it is properly being instituted properly. You may also hear this phrase, Israel is the wife of God and the church is the bride of Christ. I'm not sure if you've heard that before or not, but it's something that's kind of common. Uh, This concept is kind of common in trying to draw a distinction between the relationship that faithful Israel has with God and what the church has with God, saying Israel is the wife, the church is the bride. And well, there's there are actually a few issues with this. Here's something that I came across in this in this study. Actually, you don't find the phrase wife of God in the Bible, and believe it or not, you do not find the phrase bride of Christ in the Bible. This is one of those kind of areas that we just think, oh, that's well, that's in the Bible. It's right in the Bible. And the concept, when you pull things from here and there and put them all together, you, you can make a shaky case for it or a case for it, I should say. But you do not find this phrase, bride of Christ, in the Bible. And you do not find the phrase, wife of God, in the Bible either. Here's something I came across in the the New King James Version in the introduction, at least the copy that I have in the introduction to the book of Song of Solomon. It says, uh, The Song of Solomon is a love song written by Solomon and abounding in metaphors and oriental imagery. Historically, it depicts the wooing and wedding of a shepherdess by King Solomon and the joys and heartaches of wedded love. All good allegorically, uh uh-oh, moving out onto thin ice, allegorically, it pictures Israel as God's betrothed bride and the church as the bride of Christ. It does? (laughs) That's interesting. Maybe I ought to get a closer reading of Song of Solomon. Uh, Nowhere does Song of Solomon speak of uh, the church church doesn't exist for another thousand years after uh, Solomon wrote this. It, it, it doesn't mention Jesus by name anywhere in the Song of Solomon. All that to say, we just need to be more careful with our interpretation. And when we move into allegory, that's when the, the scriptures come from the mind of man rather than the mind of God. We have, when the Bible is allegorical, it tells us it's allegorical. Uh, Paul even says uh, in one or two places in his writings, allegorically speaking, this is such and such. Other times it'll use words like like or as. This is like this, or this is something as something else. That's when it is using figurative language. Other than that, it's not. And we need to uh, understand that as we move through. Furthermore, uh, in the, there are many passages that relate 
God's relationship with Israel to marriage. And in those, it speaks of Yahweh being the one who is married to Israel, the one who's betrothed to Israel. And who, who is Yahweh? Jesus is Yahweh, of course. When, when we see uh, the Lord stands before people, it, it always uses the term Lord in our English Bibles, Yahweh in the Hebrew is the one who is doing this. He is the physical man manifestation of God. Jesus is. So when we see Yahweh doing things in the Old Testament, that's Jesus doing things. He said as much. John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, to the Pharisees, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Better translation would be, I am, I am. Jesus says, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Did Jesus ever claim to be God? Yes, he did. In John 8, 58 for one. And that's why the priests took up stones to stone him with. He is the physical manifestation of God. So when uh, Yahweh betrothes himself to Israel, like he does in Hosea, 2, 18 through 20. This is the go-to for the uh, Israel is the wife of God, uh, folks. He, that's Jesus doing it. And furthermore, it's in the kingdom, period, that he marries Israel, that he is married to Israel. It is in the kingdom that this takes place. Notice close reading of Hosea 2, 18. In that day... I also will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky and the creeping things of the ground. That sounds a lot like the creation being redeemed that Paul talked about, talks about in Romans 8. I will abolish the bow, the sword and war from the land and will make them lie down in safety. That's peace. That's uh, beating the the uh, spears and the plowshares and these kinds of things. This is the kingdom period. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord, Yahweh. In the kingdom period, the nation of Israel will be married to Jesus the Lord, the Messiah, that the only people who will be in that kingdom period in the beginning are people who believe that Jesus is their Messiah, that he is Lord, that he is God. Every single person in the kingdom period will be, to use the language, married to Christ by way of faith in him. Faith and trust that he is the Messiah. He is the promised one. The nation of Israel, Israelite people, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not getting into the kingdom by keeping the Ten Commandments or the 613 commandments, however many there are in the Old Testament. They're not getting in that way. They're getting in the same way that you are, the same way that I am, by believing in Jesus as their Messiah. Then and only then 
will they enter into the kingdom and he will be betrothed to them forever. He says in Hosea 2.18. That's not teaching that, that Israel is the wife and, and the church is the bride. That's teaching that the people of God will be married to Jesus in the kingdom period because they believed in him only. And then he will be betrothed to them. Then you will know the Lord when you trust in him. So who is the bride? We didn't, we kind of uh, just beat on this. The church is the bride uh, concept and didn't really answer the question, but who is the bride in Revelation 19? Who is the bride? I'm going to say it's believers from the church. So yes, uh, the church is the bride, but it's also going to be believers from the tribulation period. I see no reason to exclude uh, these individuals from this celebration. Clearly, they're going to be there as well, celebrating God living with humanity. Uh, church age believers will be there. Revelation 17 and verse 14 says, these will wage war, speaking of these kings coming against Christ, these will wage war against the lamb and the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. Uh, that's language that's generally reserved for the church. The called, the, ch the choice, better term, and the faithful. Those will be the ones who are with the Lord. Uh, we notice that these people have made themselves ready in verse 7 for this lamb. And that verse 8, they clothe themselves in fine linen, bright and clean, it says there. So uh, tribulation saints have the very same garments that are said to be given to church age saints in the book of Revelation, Revelation 6, 9 through 11. When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altars of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Remember, this is all the way back in the beginning of the tribulation period. And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. When is this completed? At the end of the tribulation. And then you will be able to celebrate the fact that you are living with Christ on the earth in perfect harmony with him. Uh, Revelation 7, uh, 9 through 15 also points to tribulation saints having these same white garments that uh, those who are coming again with Christ have uh, in later in Revelation 19. But the bride, it also grows. This number of people who are included in the bride grows during the millennial period and into eternity. 
Old Testament believers are going to be in the kingdom. Hosea 2.18, we just read about that. Uh, Daniel chapter 12 speaks of the Israelites being resurrected and entering into the kingdom period with the Lord. And uh, Revelation 21, 9 through 14 points to, again, the bride, including uh, really everyone who is in the new Jerusalem, which is the eternal state, the eternal period after the thousand years. Revelation 21, 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and uh, came and spoke with me saying, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was very like a very costly stone. Uh, and verse 12, it had a great and high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and 12 names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the west. Uh, verse 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Believers of all time will be included in this, the bride, the wife of the lamb, according to Revelation 21, 9. So the answer to this question, who is the bride? Well, it's more complicated than just saying, oh, the church is the bride. In this instance, the bride is going to be at the beginning of the kingdom period, it's believers from the church, and I would uh, include tribulation saints as well in that, what is being referred to here. But then over time, it grows more to include believers of the Old Testament and uh, the millennial period moving into the eternal state. So that's kind of a complicated way. To get, a, to get to the answer of who is the bride. Is it safe to say that the church is the bride of Christ? Yes. But just understand the context of what you're saying and where you're applying that uh, information to the scriptures. Don't take a preconceived notion that the church is the bride of Christ and so everywhere I see Jesus talking about a wedding feast, well, that, well, that's talking about me because I'm a member of the church and I'm the bride of Christ. You have to be very careful uh, to not take preconceived notions and apply them back into every area of scripture like we saw in Matthew 25. That can get you into some trouble. So here in Revelation 19, I would say, well, when it's referring to the bride, it's going to be uh, referring to church age believers and tribulation saints as well, because they have made themselves ready. And we'll get into what exactly that entails uh, next time. And maybe we'll talk some more about this word bride that is actually just the term gyne or can be woman or wife 
And for some reason, the New Testament translators decided to use bride in this case. Uh, But we'll talk about that more next time. So when is the wedding? The wedding here is actually a celebration of the kingdom. That is what is being depicted when it says the marriage of the lamb has come and the marriage supper of the lamb has come. That is a description of the kingdom period. Who is the bride? The bride is the people who will be in the kingdom, essentially. And uh, so if there is any takeaway from that, again, let's rejoice and be glad because as believers in Christ, this is our future with him. And it is our future is living and with him and ruling and reigning with him as believers. What an incredible privilege that is. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for the complexities of your word as it drives us to study it more so that we can know you better. If uh, you know, we, could, we could easily create a God with our own hands a sta- out of a statue we could, we could make with our own hands and we'd know absolutely everything about that statue. Uh, and people have been doing that since almost the beginning of time. And that is not at all, of course, what you desire. We desire to know you, the creator and sustainer of this universe, who has revealed yourself to us in your word. So I thank you for the complexities. I thank you for the difficulties that drive us to reliance upon you. I thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit so that we can understand these things a little bit better. And I just pray that you would be with us in the days to come. Help us to rejoice and be glad and give you the glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.